Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are super focused on how CEOs can lead in the context of disruption and devolving societal expectations. Welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. When we were preparing to launch this podcast back in February, one of the very first interviews we did was with Brian Moynihan, the CEO of Bank of America. He'd just come back from the World Economic Forum in Davos, where he played a leading role working on a plan to, in effect, provide the metrics for stakeholder capitalism. But then the pandemic hit. We had to shelve the interview to deal with the topic of the day. So today we want to go back to that conversation because I felt like what Moynihan had to say was really fundamentally important to the issues we've been talking about on Leadership Next. And I also felt like we could probably use a bit of an update, a refresher. So we invited him back. He's here with us. Brian, thank you for joining. Uh, Thank you. It's good to be here, Alan. Uh, Good to see you again. Good to see you. So before we go back to the conversation about stakeholder capitalism, I have to ask you about the issue of the moment, which is the economy. You're one of the largest, two largest banks in the U.S. You have your finger on the pulse. You see the data. What's happening? Is the worst behind us? Are we in a recovery or are we headed for a second downturn in the fall? So the the short answer to that is we're in a recovery. The question is the duration and sustainability of that recovery is going to be a healthcare question not an economic question. And that's the thing that I think that we all have to remind ourselves, this is a healthcare problem. There's a, a virus that there's a war being waged on it by all of us in the world. We have to win that war and we win that war, the economic crisis that came out of it will be behind us. And so if you think of that going on, you saw April the worst month, you saw May a little bit better, you saw June better than that, you see July so far even better than that in terms of consumer behavior and spending. And the question is, you know, with all the work by the central banks around the world, with all the work around the fiscal stimulus by governments around the world, and especially in the U.S. leading the world in this matter, have they built bridges far enough for people to get from one side of the river to the other side of the river on this virus? And the question is, some people are across already. Yeah. Some people are still starting to go across. And that's that's the ebb and flows, the unemployment and stuff that's going to happen. But the good news is, you're starting to see people progress across at a pretty good pace. Well, I, I like your optimism, but if you look, if it's the healthcare numbers that are determining this right now, the healthcare numbers are, are about as bad as they've been in the United States. So does that mean we're going to stall? Are we going to continue to see that upward progression or are we going to be in a period of at least flatness for a few months? Well, I think that the interesting thing about that is the healthcare numbers, you know, the cases are, have risen and stuff. But if you really think about it from an economic basis, and you're seeing the activity normalized. Now, the reason why is people are used to the condition they're living in and behaving differently. They did when the world got shut down in March and April and everybody said, oh, my God, I don't know what's happened. They now know what's happened. So they're, they're figuring out how to adapt. Right. And so what you're seeing is, yes, the cases are rising, but the outcome that would cause a government to shut completely down again because they understand how to treat people better. So that's why I have more optimism. Yeah. It is a serious, serious healthcare crisis. But the, you know, the miracle of medicine is they figured out ways to deal with it. Now we'll see how that plays out. I can't predict what's going to happen in the, you know, September or October or November. I can tell you what's happened in July. Yeah, well, you've made me feel a little bit better. So thank you for that. So look, when you were here in February, one of the things we were talking about uh, this move towards stakeholder capitalism and companies focusing on their positive impact on society. And one of the things I asked you at the time was what would happen when the cycle turned down? You, of course, 
took over right after the last great economic crisis and rode the longest expansion in U.S. economic history. What I was wondering was, would all this talk about social commitment and environment and community development, would it all go by the wayside when we went into a recession because everybody would have to focus on the bottom line? Well, we're there now. What have you observed? So the IBC had come up with a set of metrics. The idea was to get more and more companies to adopt them. The idea is these metrics really, you have to go back to the sustainable development goals. They were metrics that gave rise to how companies could meet the sustainable development goals. So what's happened since then is yes, you've had a, a pandemic and you've had an economic crisis around that pandemic. But at the same time, we have more people signing on to the metrics. We have more dialogues. The green part of this has actually got completely embedded in the recovery question. You know, the World Economic Forum and, and Prince Charles and others built the Build Back Better, which is we ought to use this as we're spending money for stimulus, fiscal stimulus and activity to think about how we do that. And so I think it's still there. So the commitment is as strong as it ever was. You're seeing this interest level continue to rise because, again, this balanced view of capitalism, this balanced view. Think of that and add in it to the racial crisis in the United States, which is really the most serious crisis we had along these dimensions social justice, criminal justice, racial inequities, and things like that since the late 60s. And think about that forming the dialogue behind you too. And the people's views of that is, oh, we've got to have a more balanced view of how capitalism work and opportunities and things. That all is part of the, of the paradigm here. Yeah, I have to tell you, I, I, that's my sense as well. In fact, in some ways, I think it's accelerated during the crisis because of the nature of the crisis, because of the racial justice questions. I noticed, by the way, that you made a, Bank of America made a commitment to devote a big amount of money. I think it was a billion dollars to communities of color to help deal with these problems. What was that about? So I think if you back up a little bit, that is part of a series of things we did. So the first thing we, when we looked at this crisis was our response was going to be a customer and teammate-centric response and a community-centric response. We had to keep teammates safe. We had to change our benefits. We went to $20 an hour minimum starting wage in the middle of this in March, just to give you a sense. We provided childcare support for people when their kids were going home from school. One million days at a cost us of $100 a, a day, where we said, Alan, you can hire anybody you can find to help take care of your kids so you can be effective in your workday, and we'll pay for it as a company, irrespective of any income level. A million days have been used by our teammates. We basically paid extra money, uh, extra wages and overtime to our teammates that were still working in the field, so to speak. But behind that, what happened is then you had the George Floyd murder, you had the other cases. Uh, in addition to that, you had, and this is a long period, and so you had the culmination of the impact of the virus on communities of color, and then you had the impact of the racial justice question, and we decided, look, we just can't let this die down. We have to put our money where our mouth is and double our efforts and more. So we do about $250 million in charity. We said we'll do another $250 million on top of that round numbers, four years times 250 or a billion, and we're aiming it at four basic principles. Healthcare, because that's the issue of the moment. Housing, education, skills-based training, and then entrepreneurship. And not lending entrepreneurship, but more equity and more growth capital, and how do we put money to work? And so we announced that really because this crisis had an effect on communities of color that is uh, outsized and detrimental and harder hitting. And that's proven out, even as you've gone to these other state jurisdictions and it's broadened across the population basis, the consistency from Massachusetts to Texas, so how it affected community colors is actually fairly consistent. That's what we're trying to redress. So I want to go back to the conversation we were having in February, because at the core of that was this idea that if 
business is going to turn to more of a stakeholder orientation where you're measuring not just what you deliver to your shareholders, but what you deliver to society, what you do for the environment, that the only way that works is if we develop some common metrics that people can use to measure what you're doing, to hold you accountable for what you're doing. And you spent a big chunk of your time working and still are, I imagine, on that Davos project you told us in February your plan was to, to go back in January and finalize that. Is that still the plan? Yeah, we're still on the course. We have a group of the International Business Council, which is the large companies in Davos, in three weeks, where we'll get a, where are we? And the big four accounting firms who did a lot of work around this have been out syndicating along with the World Economic Forum's team and our team here at Bank America and some other team. And they're out syndicating this, talking to companies. We're getting people to sign up to it. The environmental piece obviously comes through here. We're getting uh, standard bearers, for lack of a better term, out there to agree that this set of metrics is good enough. Or if you have some changes, give us a few more, but don't make it 100 more because that's where the problem. But the key is to get a line between investors, operators, and asset owners to say, if people could be measured on these metrics on a consistent basis, then they can make judgments about whether they're making progress. So I think that the view on the metrics is that they are built off of a lot of metrics that were out there there just was too many out there. And so what we've done is consolidate into 20 odd metrics and behind those are submetrics. But the idea was to pick the best of the best metrics that we thought measured the activities under the 17 SDGs that would be closely aligned to progress on them, which is the key. But secondly, on metrics, people could actually calculate and disclose. And that's why we use the big four accounting firms. So yes, they're out there. We've streamlined them. Now, one of the things that we've been learning over the last you know, four or five months since I talked to you last is you know, people said, well, we like these three metrics of one of the standard bearers. Okay, we'll roll those in and maybe we'll roll something else out. So there's a lot of work going on underneath the individual metrics, but they're largely decided. And, and it will, I assume, Brian, it will take some time to hold people's feet to the fire and get them to actually disclose these things. Yeah, it, well, that's what we're asking people to sign up to is to disclose them in a report. And, and, you know, we're not saying this is part of your audit financials that, you know, goes in your SEC reports. The SEC is pushing for disclosure. So is the EU. So is the ECB and other things. And so one of the issues is we're trying to get all those groups to say, are these metrics good enough? And they are. Then, OK, let's start with that. And most people emphatically agree with we've got to narrow this and not have everybody pick their own best one. But remember, the key thing to this, and we talked about this before, Alan, is that you have to sort of start with a few principles. One is you can't solve the world's problems, including what's come up out of the healthcare crisis and how it's affected society and out of the racial inequality and, and criminal justice and other things without private industry doing it. There's not enough money in government. You're seeing the federal government struggle with a, another trillion to some number higher than that a stimulus program. The deficits are record levels. They just don't have the money. The EU just passed a, a deficit, a budget, which was, I think, two, two and a half trillion, three trillion. It's not near enough money. You need six trillion every year for the next umpteen years. So principle is private money has to drive. The second thing is then how do you agree that my private company is driving the right direction? That's what the metrics then give you a scorecard. And when you have that scorecard, the whole activity of the company becomes aligned. So it's important for us today, you know, the environmental metrics were kind of a lot of discussion earlier this year. Obviously, the human capital metrics became a lot of discussion given what went on. And so a lot of the metrics around wages, around fairness, around diversity, representation, those metrics, you know, obviously important to people to judge whether you're a good company from both a consumption side, you know, your brand, et cetera, but also from a, I want to come work this side and then I want to invest side. So the second order is we had to get a common set of metrics that the investors believed 
were dispositive or at least partially dispositive on whether you're a good investment. That's been done. So it's that idea that you need the money, you need private business, and you need investors agree that the companies who perform in these metrics are the ones they're going to invest in. And that what that will cause is disinvestment from the ones who don't make the step up. That's kind of the interesting part of it. We're not saying company A is good and all the other companies in the industry are bad. We're saying company A is good, companies B, C, D, all are above the line too. Invest in them all. You can make decisions. But company E that's not trying, you ought to think about it because if you believe like what's proven out by the research that if you don't do well in this, you're not going to do well, you're making a bad investment decision. There's one issue that comes up in this context that most CEOs I talk to don't like to talk about, but I want to ask you about it, uh, and that's CEO pay. I mean, I, I think last year you were $26, 27000000 million. Is it good for society for Brian Moynihan to make $26 million? Well, this goes back to the question about the shareholders. Every year for the last eight or ten years, we've gone for a vote. A million shareholders voted last year. Hmm. A million people voted. So that's hmm. more than most states would yeah. – a large state would elect a governor. Yeah. And 95 percent of them approved the pay package. You got 95 percent. Yeah, and we've got 93 to 95 percent for eight years in a row. And so it's it's always going to sound like a number and all that stuff. But the reality is, is there's a mechanism for people to express their point of view and it's – they get to vote on it every, every single year. It's voted on by the shareholders and people on the company. Now, let me flip that. The way I think about this is goes back to the question of ensuring everybody has a high quality living in our company and the pay uh, raises. And, and the operating efficiency allows us to do it. Our expenses are down $20 billion per year. That's like the size of most companies' total expense base. Yeah. Yet at the same time, our employees have experienced in the under 100,000, probably 6 to 8% per year increases across 10 years, under 50,000 double-digit increases. But there had to be some pain in that efficiency gain. When your expense comes down, there got to be some people it's who are people. losing their jobs. But that's or... where you have to plan ahead. The worst thing to do as a CEO is to lay somebody off. And I yeah. try to avoid it. Our teammates plan headcount three years out. We let attrition be our friend, as we say. So do it with attrition, yeah, not, it, it, not and with you try, So anytime uh, – we're down 10,000 managers in the last um, – some from summer 15 till today out of 30. You'd say, oh, my God. All we did is every time somebody quit, we took the job, gave it to two other teammates, and they all got responsibility and pay increases, yeah. and we saved some money. And so you have to you have to use the that operational excellence theme. You can't just hope. You can't just say, "Let me hope this will happen." But you know, if, if you look at it, it, we were able to accomplish that at the same time. We had very generous severance, a year and a half for anybody that worked twenty five years. So it's it, but the idea was to let it manage itself out of system by really being tough on. If someone left, do we need to create that job? Now, client service, front office, those you always have to fill because the people are working very hard and doing a great job. But the question is, you know, if a manager leaves and he or she had five direct reports, another two managers have seven each, you give two, two to one, three to the other, and life yeah. goes on. I'm here with Joe Yukazoglu, who is the CEO of Deloitte U.S. and had the good sense to sponsor this podcast. Thanks for being with us and thanks for your support. Thanks, Alan. Pleasure to be here. Joe, we all know that what gets measured gets managed. Folks like your colleagues at Deloitte have spent a century building up metrics to keep track of shareholder return. But how do we measure stakeholder return? This is still all about measuring attributes that do, in fact, drive shareholder value. Because over the long term, if you are driving indicators that represent value creation to your stakeholders, that will translate into premium returns to your shareholders. So this is really about as lengthening our horizon 
horizons. It's a combination of quantitative and qualitative metrics. There's an enormous amount of work to be done, but you're seeing a real sense of urgency around this. I think that's a really important point, that in the long term, over years, decades, the interests of shareholders and the interests of the stakeholders converge. But in the short term, they can often go in different directions. They certainly can. But what you see is leading investors encouraging the companies they invest in to make certain that they are building and leading sustainable enterprises with the objective of maximizing shareholder value over a long time. Joe, thanks for being with us. Alan, it's a real pleasure. Welcome back to Leadership Next. So as I said at the beginning of this episode, I was really anxious to talk to Brian Moynihan about his effort to build up some metrics around actually measuring stakeholder capitalism. But I also wanted to talk to him about how he's practicing this leadership model himself at Bank of America. His first response was that actively caring for employees and communities was nothing new at Bank of America. But I pushed back on that. So you said this is nothing new to banking, but I've been covering business for four decades now, and I do think there's something different going on here. And one of the things that convinced me there was something different going on was in 2016 when the state of North Carolina, which is where your bank is headquartered, I think your bank is the largest employer in the state. If if we're not, we're close. You're close. Okay. The state of North Carolina passed a law limiting transgender access to public bathrooms. Now, I can tell you for most of my career, any CEO in a position like yours would have gone immediately under the desk when that happened. Say, I'm not going to talk about it. It doesn't affect my bottom line. Social issue, controversial. And you came out and opposed the law. You went against your own state legislature. That sort of stuff didn't happen in the past, and I'm wondering why you did it. Well, it comes down to uh, we believe in diversity and inclusion in our company, and we believe it's the way to get the best people who can be themselves at work. So we define inclusion. I can be at Bank of America. I could be whoever I am and be wildly successful. So at the time that bill came out, we got – emails from our teammates saying, I won't come to Charlotte for a meeting. And we happened to have our Global Diversity Inclusion Group awards ceremony in Charlotte that year. And they wouldn't come because they're saying, wait a second, this, this wow. environment is not the environment we should be coming in. They don't, it wasn't about us as a company, it was about the environment. So we basically had to take a stand on the theory that it was the right thing to do. That's not a debate, but also that it affects you know, our, our teammates. And when something affects our teammates, you've got to go in and make sure that they feel comfortable and they feel they can be successful. And so it was, it was not only the right thing to do, but also it was very acutely that the people who wrote those notes to me felt it to the, you know, to the core that, that, that the company had to do something to help them. And that's what got us. But that's a change. I yeah. mean, your employees are demanding more of you, right. I would argue, than they did of your predecessors. Well, I think they demand more. That goes back to your, your broad point, which is um, customers are customers and you can do a great job, but customer delight, customer satisfaction means a broader thing today whether it's the ESG principles or how you human capital principles. Uh, Same with your teammates. They not only want to work for a company, they want to work for a great company, and they want to work for a company that believes in them. Now, with 200,000 teammates, you can get a variety of opinions about things. So we choose carefully 
where it really affects us. And so something like that goes right to the heart of fairness. The HB2 went right to the heart of fairness for our employees. That was the, the it, law passed the, the by law the passed. state. Yeah. And, and so you went in to protect it. On the weapons choices we made, it was because we had at the time about 150 teammates had a person who was actually killed, yeah. related to a person who was killed, knew somebody affected by it. Post nightclub, we had five employees in that nightclub when it, when it was wow. shot. And one wow. of them was a triage people. And you stopped there and said, they weren't asking us, you know, gun, the Second Amendment's fine, but they were asking us to say, this type of gun is used in this fashion. Shouldn't we say something about it? And when you have 150 employees who said it, you know, we had to take a stand as a company. So it's not like we're out there finding issues. What was the gun stand that you took? Yeah, yeah, we, were, we, we said we wouldn't do business with the manufacturers of you know, high-impact, you know, uh, high-load delivery-type rifles. Yeah. Now, you, you also have – I mean, you've been very strong on the environment, right. I know. Uh, you feel like that's an important area for the bank to make a stand. What have you done in that area? So if you think about the environment, this is where I say it's not new. Our first environmental commitment was probably the mid-2000s where it's a combination of two or three things. It's how we operate as a company. It's ultimately how we get to carbon neutrality. And the third thing is how we help other companies make the same transition, our financing activities, the work we do, even research we do. And so we went from a 25 million commitment to 25 billion, 50 billion, 125 billion. And we just finished that in about five years. So now we've announced a 300 billion over the next that's 10 years. That's a lot of money. And that's all financing activities. So it can be green bond underwriting. It could be financing a solar installation, larger solar installation in, uh, in India. We just financed wind farms, hydro farms, also some primary research. Do you, do you get good returns on those it, investments? Um, there are some, like research, obviously, it's pure research, right. and that's not the lion's share, but it's a good business. It makes money. Sometimes we accept lower returns. Sometimes the tax advantage, you know, tax benefits are how we get paid as opposed to the pure P&L. Do you ever have shareholders say, why the heck are you doing that? Make the best investment. Don't get all squishy on me. Well, it's it's a core business. It, you know, if you got to step back. Our clients and our customers believe we have to make a transition. That transition has to be fair. The world has energy, so we worked on a thing called Sustainable Energy for All with the UN a few years ago to help think through how much it would cost to actually provide energy that's sustainable to everybody. Uh, and, but it also, you know, we firmly believe it can't happen overnight, so we have to then finance the transition, and that's a good business sense. So it makes money. It's, it's fine. Sometimes we accept a little lower returns because we're trying to push an idea that is a little more, more difficult. But most of the time, it's the core of the, when we put the $300 billion out, the $45 billion we did over the last 12 months, it all gets decent returns. That's the way you align capitalism, which is you get the money flowing to where it can produce a return that's acceptable. And then more money can flow, and then you can actually drive the business. So we're not alone in this, and I, I take pride in our industry, frankly, across the board. There's been commitments by many of my peers in the same things. We got into it earlier. We are carbon neutral now. You put in a high minimum wage for right. your employees, twenty dollars, right. Right? right? Did you do that for economic reasons? Well, we did it because um, you have to go back in time to where we started on this path, which was really, I'd say, around eleven or twelve. We did two things. We got some noise from the market, the press, saying, you know, your uh, teammates are, you know, on food stamps and stuff like that. And we, I sort of said, how could that be possible, knowing what we paid? And, and, and if you actually want to look at it, if you had multiple dependents and stuff, there, you could cut it, and you work part-time, you could do it. But we just basically said, you know what? We make too much money as a company. Our margin's too strong. We need these teammates, and we need a turnover to come down. So we're going to start to raise the minimum wage. And that was when we were about probably 11, 12, 10 or 11. We got to 15 three years ago. And then we said, you know what? We're going to 20. And we announced we go to 17, 18, 15, 20, and then we just accelerate. Did that. you have to go to your board to get approval? No, to they, they're 100% with us. 
No. Really? You don't have any uh, pushback? No, no because in the end of the day, remember, one of the big issues in a company is you want the best teammates to serve those customers. If you think about the nature of that, you gotta, you just got to keep investing not only in their wages but also their benefits but also their training. We, we move 17,000 teammates to new jobs every year. That's a reskilling process that goes on. We hired, agreed that we hired 10,000 teammates from the low and moderate income neighborhoods we serve so we'd have – give teammates career opportunities in our company who would then work with their neighborhoods and do a great job. It, it, it's a virtuous circle. I, I want to talk about that because, look, Bank of America came out of the financial crisis with not a great reputation. Right. I mean, one of the things that the bank did was buy countrywide, which a lot of people right. thought was at the core of making bad loans to people who couldn't afford it, et cetera. Uh, and, by, and the whole financial system right. had a reputational problem. Right. So there is a tendency for people from the outside to look at uh, all of the things you've just been talking about, commitment to the environment, commitment to employees, commitment to communities, and say this is just PR. This right. is just something you're right. doing to build up your tattered reputation. It wasn't for that purpose. We did it in the mid-2000s when we were one of the most admired companies in the world, and the people demand that of you. When you go back to what's changed is the teammates, if you go back and think about kids over the last decade to 15 years we're talking about. Think They've about, changed. They, they think about what they want in an yeah. employer. And we need those kids to stay with us and have great careers. And so it isn't a gimmick. This is how we run the company. Do you ever think about it as moral leadership? You, you do. Um, you go back to Judeo-Christian ethics, do unto others as you have done. Others. I mean, you can come up with – I was a lawyer by training, so you can go back and look at the history of how law developed and stuff. You can look at, you know, all the religions have this. But the reality is it is the right thing to do. And I had a professor a long time ago named Professor Rhodes, and he was – he look like your sort of crazy uncle type of guy, and he teach a class in jurisprudence, and we go through all these tortured law cases. That think about all of them, about this. He finally stopped and said, you guys are thinking about this story. People just ought not to treat people that way. And you have to be that basic about it, which is yeah. we have to do a great job for our teammates and our customers because it's the right thing to do. And because of that, they'll do well, we'll do well. And if you forget that, it was not news even to Milton Friedman to say the old, you know, delight your customers, delight your teammates, and your shareholders will be delighted. That, that's at the base of all this too. It's just that you've got to think about society too. Yeah, I, I, I do believe that that puts increased pressure on people in positions like yours. It, it does. Uh, because you, you're not just responding to your shareholders. You basically have to pay attention to all the needs of society. You have to worry about transgender access to public bathrooms, for God's if, sake. If it affects your company, it's going to affect your brand. It's going to affect your return. And if your teammates – are you know, and you can feel it to your core, but you also have to be, make sure your teammates are with you. So tell me personally how you deal with that. What do you do to unwind? What do you do to get away from it? I have, what I have a your... great, I have a great family, and and I spend a lot of time with them. And you know, my wife and I go out to dinner and relax, and you know, talk about the issues of the day. But it's and I you, play any a sports. Golf. I play you a play golf. golf. I work out. And you have to be in good physical shape to be able to do what we do. Brian Moynihan, fascinating conversation. Thank you for uh, taking the time. Uh, you clearly have a difficult job. I have the best job in the world. If you could, if you see what our teammates can do for clients, it's it's easy. Thank you. Leadership Next is produced by Dan Sacker, edited by Nicole Vergala, and written by me, Alan Murray, along with my amazing colleagues, Ellen McGirt and Megan Arnold. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media. Leadership Next episodes are produced by Fortune's editorial team. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Deloitte or its personnel, nor does Deloitte advocate or endorse any individuals or entities featured on the episodes. 